Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello and welcome to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. This is the podcast where I sit down with an extraordinary person and they share their story. They might have overcome some kind of adversity or they may still be on their journey, but with stories that will make you laugh, cry, and hopefully feel a little bit inspired. This week, I'm joined by a man who's out to make positive changes in the industry he feels he was let down by 10 years ago. Anton Ferdinand is a former professional footballer and now works for a company, New Era, with family members Rio and Max as an ambassador and a mentor for young players in the game. He was involved in probably the biggest racism case within English football in 2011. And in November 2020, Anton released his own BBC One documentary. Anton Ferdinand, Football, Racism and Me, discussing the issue of racism within football and the impact that the on-field incident with John Terry had upon his career. Anton is now a husband and a father and is working to set standards and accountability for organisations to achieve diversity and inclusion. What an amazing guy. So I'm so over the moon to say that Anton is here with me today, virtually here with me today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. I've, I've really been looking forward to doing this. Yeah, because we've kind of worked together recently. We we guest edited the Metro together, didn't we? Yeah. But we never yeah. met because of COVID. No. Exactly. Crazy times, huh? <laughs> I do have a story to tell you that we have met before, but I don't know if you'll remember it. Was it a long time ago? Well, it was a very long time ago. I was probably about 22. You must have only been about... 19 or 20 i'll tell you where we met we met in 50 cents mansion in london the party that was an unbelievable party by the way yeah wow it was amazing a long wasn't time it? ago slightly off subject for the podcast anyway long that was so, a long long time ago i want to talk to you um i want to start really i suppose more at present day because actually um life has really changed for you you know we talked in that intro about you've led lots of different lives you've done lots of different things you know you're in a new stage now you're a father yourself what is it like retiring from a profession that kind of consumes your life uh, like your everyday life now must be quite different from what you were used to yeah definitely um it's very very different um i deem myself very lucky although going from a, a, a profession that's very structured 
to all of a sudden having no structure. Um, not just that, it, it was having to learn something new. But one thing that's there, the work ethic, the work ethic's still there that I had as a footballer and trying to become a footballer, that work ethic's still there, it's ingrained in me. Mm. Um, but it has been hard. But as I said, I'm lucky that I've had something to walk straight into at Neuro Global Sports Management. Because it's such a commitment, isn't it? Like physically and mentally to be at the top of your game in football and then for it to suddenly stop, it's, it's almost like a bereavement, like when you lose somebody and you have to just rebuild and, and start again. Like there's some kind of sadness almost. Yeah, exactly that. And my sadness really came as a father, if I'm honest. Um, I'm lucky enough to say that that me and my wife, uh, but we're going to have another baby. Oh, well, um, congratulations. Thank you very much, which is fantastic for me personally. Um, and I know she's over the moon because, and where I say the sadness came for me in, in my fatherhood is that when I retired, I realised how much I actually missed. Yeah. Football came before anything. And that's the sacrifice that you need to have. And so I'm sitting here glad that me and my wife are are expecting another baby because now I can be ever present and do them type of things from the get-go. It's interesting because when you hear those expressions of like, it's tough at the top, it actually is really lonely to be successful because like you said, everything else does have to take a back seat and that one thing takes the priority. So a lot of people wish they were there or they think they wish they were there, but the reality is when you come there, it does. there is a price to pay to sit there and you don't sit there for very long always. Yeah, definitely. And and I think my sacrifice mm. was my friends. My school friends, I sacrificed them. I didn't speak to, when I left school, I didn't speak to them until I became a professional footballer, until I paid, played like 10 games in, in the first team at West Ham. Wow. Because I knew that I would end up getting into that routine of going and doing stuff with them. And that would hinder my chance of becoming a professional footballer. And we saw you in your documentary, the BBC documentary, we saw you go back to your roots. You went back to, to Peckham in South London where you were brought up. Um, and is Peckham good memories for you? Is it happy memories growing up or was it a difficult time? In terms of growing up in Peckham, I wouldn't have changed it for the world. It's, it's made me who I am today. Um, and I, t- I take my son there from time to time just to to take him onto the estate just so he can see certain things like we'll go on to the, into the adventure playground he, he went there and he had a ball all of a sudden the loads of loads of kids started coming to the, to the pen you know and wanted to be his mate and he was like this is great and I was going do you know the reasons because you're the one with the ball the one with the ball is the one who everyone wants to be friends with mm. because they don't have a ball You, how many balls have you got at home Oh, I've got about 10, okay, these, these kids ain't got any. Taking my son back there um, as much as possible, I think it, it's good grounding for him, you know. Mm. The, the streets of Peckham, the estates of Peckham make you understand and realise nothing's ever free. You have to work for everything and, and that's ingrained. So how does a boy that comes from an area where no one ever has a ball become a professional football player what was your journey from going from Anton in Peckham to the Anton that that the whole country knows I say this regularly I wasn't the best player on my on my estate at my age group and neither was Rio I'm I'm sure you would say that Um, but the difference was we had the backing of our parents Mm. we had the support system like my mum and my dad would take my friends to football and me to football, we'd be playing, I'd be looking at the sidelines and my mum and dad are there. My friends would be looking at the sideline and 
my mum and dad are there. We had yeah. that we had that support network and and not just that. Growing up in somewhere like Peckham, I was asked to do certain things on the streets and stuff. But the reality of it for me was I feared letting my mum and dad mum and dad down more than I feared the person asking me to do something or hold something. Mm-hmm. And that was the reality for me. I didn't want to let down, I didn't want to disappoint my parents. And that was the respect and, and the fear factor that I had of my parents. And I use the word fear because a lot of people use that word and they frown or I think there's, when you've got a fear, when you're fearful of your parents, it's not necessarily a bad thing as long as the, the balance is is correct. And that's what it was for me. I think obviously seeing Rio do it and seeing my mum's face when he bought her a house, seeing my dad's face when when he bought cars and 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 houses for the family. Um, I wanted that for myself mm. and. As people would know, when you live in a place like Peckham, you're always told there's no way out. The only way out, it really is, is within the gangs, earning money within a gang, or or, or trying to be a footballer, or trying to be a, a musician. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, that's the that's what you're told, and that's and you're told that when you're in school, teachers will tell you, "Are oh, you won't amount to nothing," but. Because I had that drive, because of my upbringing, because of the support system that I had at home, my life was different to a lot of others. Mm, gosh, it's, it's so hard, isn't it? Like you talk about your parents being there for you, but then on the other side, you talk about the expectation being so low. And like when, like you said, when people don't believe in us, it when somebody labels you something, it kind of makes you hit that glass ceiling and you never go beyond it if you're that kind of person. Do you think back then um, you understood what racism was? Was it something your parents talked to you about? Was it something that were, because now discussions are, but I mean, we're not there, but discussions are happening more widely in the media. People are talking to their children about racism. The children that they feel won't be affected by it. They're realizing everybody needs to be talking about racism, not just certain minorities. Was it something your family talked about? My mum, so my mum's, a white was a white woman. My dad, uh, black with Caribbean heritage from Saint Lucia. Um, the stuff that my mum endured made her not made her, but she understood. Made her is the wrong word. She understood that society would not see her her two sons as white males. She understood because she was no longer looked upon as a, a white female. Mm-hmm. You know, because she had fell in love with a black man and had children with that black man she was now considered someone who wasn't white in society and that was her reality so my mum and my dad made me understand that society is never going to look at you and go oh look there's that white boy or look there's that mixed race boy they're going to look at you and go look there's that black boy you know and that was always spoken about you know and when growing up people ain't going to see you the same as others that's mm-hmm. a fact it was only till I got older then I started to to experience little bits of racism, but it wasn't always from white people. Sometimes it was from black people. What are you? You're, you're not white, you're not black. What are you? You're confused. That type of stuff mm-hmm. I would get. So where I tried to fit in, I didn't know, but what I always went back to, what my mum and dad always said, no, no, you're black. You are black. You're a young black male. And I lived by that. And that was my core values. 
And it's interesting because what you did in your documentary, you spoke out and um, some people can't understand what it is to live with things and, and not be able to speak out because for men and women, there's lots of different reasons you can't speak out about abuse, discrimination, um, and it might be to do with your losing your job. It might be to do with upsetting your loved ones. It might be do, to do with re-traumatizing yourself. There just might not be a safe space for you to be able to be real and say the truth. And I think one of the things that's happening now is lots of people are coming forward about historic crimes, historic behaviors, their, what was their normal, which would not be considered normal now. Um, and you did that in this BBC documentary. You talked about this incident that you'd been involved in um, in October 2011, where John Terry was accused of using racist language towards you. This was during a game between uh, QPR. You were playing for QPR, weren't you, at the time? Yeah. Um, and he was playing for Chelsea. And you really bravely spoke quite candidly in the programme about that. Um now, there might be people listening that maybe didn't see that or, or don't know what happened. Can you tell me in your own words about that? Yeah, um, well, it was my first West London derby, uh, but understood how big it was because I'd watched Les Ferdinand, my, my second cousin, um, at Loftus Road as a kid. Um, we got into the game, we were winning the game. There was a lot of um, hostile, there was a lot of hostility. Uh, two, play, two Chelsea players got sent off. Um, so it was a feisty game. It was it was it was a game with a lot of um, big crunching tackles and and everything that a London derby should be. Um, and Chelsea had a had a throw in, and it was down in in QPR in our half. And John Terry came forward. Uh, the ball got thrown into the box, and as the ball got thrown into the box, I eased him out of the way with my arm. And he went down theatrically and tried to get a penalty because it was in the box. And I was like, turn, I said, like, you get up. Where you walk, like, you're, you're, you're big for nothing, get up. And he didn't like that. I said that to him. And the ball was still in play. And the ball now went out to the to the, to, to their left-hand side, which is the other side of the pitch. And we're still in play. And I'm looking at the ball. And all of a sudden, I felt a barge in the back of my, in, into my back, which was John Terry. So I turned around, barged him back, but the linesman had seen what had happened. So the linesman had flagged for a free kick to, to us. Um, and then the game had stopped and we had come together. We were we were having words with each other and I openly say on the documentary, I'm not proud of what I said to him about him um, having an affair with, with his teammates. Uh, Mrs. at the time, he was Wayne Bridges' uh, girlfriend at the time and used language that I shouldn't have used. And that was that, you know, he said certain things to me, uh, but no racism mm -hmm. at the time. And that was that. And he jogged back into his position. We had a free kick and, and I left a free kick to the goalkeeper and I started to jog up the pitch. He was already back in his position by then as I started to jog up the pitch. But I was shouting at the top of my voice, like, you are a C next Tuesday you, mm. because you shagged your teammates' misses. Mm -hmm. and I was shouting it and doing the gesture and because Loftus Road is so small and it's one of them old school um, stadiums where it's so close to the pitch and at the time it was a little it was a little bit silent in there so I think a lot of people heard it mm -hmm. and then the camera because it was a live game on TV the camera then panned in on John Terry and that's when he 
allegedly, I have to use the word allegedly, allegedly mm-hmm. um, said the words that he said. Um, and he just, he said racial slurs. Yeah, like, he said like, a, yeah, yeah, he said a racial slur at me, allegedly. Um, and I never heard it at the time. If I did hear it at the time, my reaction probably would have been very, very different. Maybe not whilst the game was going on because um, I was a student of the game professional and, and whilst the game was going on, I, I probably wouldn't have said or done anything. But after mm-hmm. the game, 100%, um, my reaction towards him would have been very, very different. My reaction to actually winning the derby, I wouldn't have cared about that. you mm. know. Um, and the proof's in the pudding in that because when... I played, I'm just going off topic a little bit, but when I played for England under 21s against Germany, I was racially abused in the pitch and I heard it. And we needed to win that game to get into to the European Championships. And we've done that. And I'm someone who loves to celebrate. I like to have a joke. I like to have a laugh. Mm. Um, and after that game, I jogged straight down the tunnel. I didn't want no part of the celebrations because I'd remembered what had happened in the game and, and I wanted to deal with it in the way that I knew how. Which was which was learned on the streets of Peckham, right. and 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 that's the way that I was. So if I would have heard John Terry, my reaction would have been very very different. That's one hundred percent. So people like me, I'm not really into football, right? But I I watched the Euro because I think we all wanted something to be part of, to feel proud of because of yep. lockdown, and then it really opened my eyes to see how. People are like supporting these guys and there and there are players. And then when it doesn't go the way they want it to go, the way they turn on them and the way it becomes racist, abusive, illegal, um, it becomes so damaging and so cruel. And then all of a sudden they're not our guys because they didn't win. And and when I started to search it on Twitter, I was like, no, this is really common. This is really normal. Yeah. Social media now allows the minority of football fans, and I say minority, to to go and be their true self. Yeah. You know, um, years ago it was in the stadium, they could be their true self. Years ago it was on the street, they could be their true self. As we've gone on in the years, it's become more um, policed on the streets. Um, so these human beings would go to football and be able to be their true self at a football game. Now, now the, the stands are being policed a bit more and a bit better now. Are we where we want them to be? No way, because it still happens. Um, but then people have a, a platform to go and do it where they can actually hide behind mm-hmm. a phone, a tablet. That's why we're seeing people be so blasé about it and, and just just tweet it and post it at will because there's no repercussions, there's, there's, there's no consequences and there's no accountability. So with that said... That's why we're seeing an influx of of racism on social media. Mm, Because for me, it's kind of sad because when I was researching you, you know, you played for West Ham and you you said you were a fan of West Ham. So, like, imagine as a young guy to actually become the people that you, you know, you aspire to be, you worship them, you become that man to other boys. um, And you go and experience this amazing life that is what a lot of guys think they want. And then this happens to you where you get so much abuse from the public, your family got abused, they received bullets in the post. Well, for me to say to my friends or say to people and even say it now, I hated football, I hated what football stood for. You know, when I lived, drank and breathed football. It's crazy to me to, to hear, when I hear it back, me saying that. But it is my reality and 
is something that I feel needs to be spoken about to help others who may be going through the same mental challenges, um, but in different circumstances, you know. So I feel it's important mm-hmm. that I speak about these things because it had deep consequences for me mentally um, that I didn't know I was going through at the time. And the fact that if it was just me that was getting the abuse, I probably would have felt like I could have dealt with it a bit more and a mm-hmm. bit better than I did. Um but because my family were involved in it, they were getting abused. My, my my younger siblings would go to school. They would get abused in at school. Everywhere I went, it was Anton's fault. So if John Terry didn't play well, it was Anton's fault. If John Terry, when John Terry retired from English foot, from international football, it was Anton's fault. Everything was Anton's fault. And that when you hear something that much, you start to believe it. And yeah. And that's what it was. Like my my family never said to me it was my fault, but because I'd heard it elsewhere mm-hmm. so often, it had me in that frame of mind, that thought process that anything I was got, any everything that was happening to to um, my family, it was my fault. Even Rio, Rio never really played for England after that. That's because of me. That's the reason why we're receiving bullets. That's the reason why my mum's house is is getting bombarded with with eggs and and all sorts of missiles is because of me. And what that does to you is 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 unexplainable. It's so crazy to hear you talk like this because, you know, what people are forgetting is actually you were the victim in this incident. You didn't do anything wrong. You just existed. And then this happened to you. Yet this, the subject of like when, you know, when I watched the documentary, the subject almost felt like, your guilt, but you didn't do anything in that situation. I mean, and I actually really understand why you didn't speak out because, you know, you were very young at the time. Um, You didn't really know what was going on. Nobody else had ever spoken about, about anything like that. In fact, what you went through back then was unknown and people didn't take it seriously in the way that they would, you know, 10 years on now, if you'd have spoken out now, it would have been received in such a different way. The biggest thing that I've learned in this whole process, in this whole 10 year period is to never allow people to control your narrative. Mm-hmm. And because I didn't speak out, because I didn't speak, I allowed people to control my narrative. So maybe I wouldn't have gone through such a, a traumatic time. But someone said it to me the other day. They asked me, I was doing a talk for Black History Month and they asked me, um, how do I feel that I was the first person really to to publicly go through something like this? He said, the reason why I'm saying it is because you was the first. You like you was the first to go through this um player on player and it be so big and be so public. And the the magnitude of the player who allegedly done it to you has never been seen. Mm. Um it's just hard for me to see it where I'm going, okay, I was the catalyst for change. I wasn't the catalyst. I don't think I was the catalyst for change because I didn't speak you at really the time. Were. You really were. And and with the documentary, that's why it's so admirable, because sometimes, like you said, when we are silent, our silence can be seen as being complicit, as being consent to treat us a certain way, to make out we're a certain person, to tell a story that didn't actually really happen. And you're now do, what, what you're doing now for all these other Antons now is you're you're changing it, you know, and it is admirable. And 
you know, sometimes people can tell you something was a, a certain way, something uh, was a microaggression, something didn't really matter. And and like you said, you can start to believe that. And if those people are more powerful than you and they're, if they're in a different position to you, you can get pushed further down and repressed until you end up depressed and anxious and blaming yourself. And it's all ill-placed guilt. You know, you were so brave in the documentary you know you as a man and, and as a sportsman you talked about going to therapy you said things we've never seen any men talk about on telly let alone famous men let alone sportsmen you know I I kind of watched the program and, and it made me want to cry you know you talked you went to therapy you talked about the impact racism had had on you and you know you had then that sadness of losing your mum to cancer as well and all of these emotions came intertwined in, in that event I've had ups and downs in my life, but I always try to believe there's a reason why I'm going through certain things. This documentary, uh, Football Racism and Me, is it was not just about me. It wasn't just about the incident. It was about my mum's legacy, mm. you know. And, and She would have been proud, don't you think? Yeah, she would have been proud. And I can say that now without tearing up. I can say that now without crying. Um because of the therapy that I've been to, because of the documentary and... It's kind of channeling the pain into purpose, isn't yeah, it? 100%. Yeah, 100%. And and I think I, like, I had a weight on me and stuff was coming off of me so much that I'd get home and I'd be asleep before my head even, even hit the pillow and I'd wake up the next day. You know, um, she was with me throughout the whole filming of the, of the documentary. I know it and... There's a scene where I'm at, where I do cry when I'm when I'm in Peckham, and I'm saying she will be. I know she'll be proud of me. The reason why that was so emotional for me around that time was one because I was talking about my mum. But on my estate, we used to have a, a back grass where we used mm. to play a lot of our football, and or if we was if we was anywhere on the estate, my mum would open the back window and call me and real shout Rio Anton like dinner, you gotta get <laughs> yeah. up, and we would hear it from anywhere on our estate and we knew it was time to go um, and on that day it was quite windy in there and there was like they've now got trees on the back grass and when the trees were whistling I could hear my mum shouting like Rio, Anton come. I could actually hear it so I knew she was with me and then when I'd done my last scene which was at West Ham speaking to the young under 23 players I was sitting talking and doing a summary for the day and I could hear my mum saying, Anton, you've done it. You've done it. And I, and I walked after I finished, because I could hear her, I'd finished and I just got up and started walking. And I just kept looking at the sky and I was streaming with tears going, mum, I've done mm. it. Mum, I've done it. Mum, we've done it. I knew she was with me. So the documentary, seriously, the fact that it was so therapeutic for me and allowed me to understand certain things that had gone on in my life. You know, Sounds like it gave you a lot of closure. Yeah, it did. It yeah. did. And that's why I was able to to, to have empathy for, for John Terry. And that's one thing that scared me. I cared about what the black, black community thought more than anyone because mm. had I represented us right, um, mm -hmm. and the fact that I was doing something that we're not known for doing, which is showing empathy to somebody who's allegedly abu abused us. Yeah. You know, that's something that, in black community that we don't do that you know mm -hmm. um, but I just wanted people to understand and know that my empathy towards John Terry wasn't one of acceptance it was one of 
I don't accept what you're, what what's happened, but I'm willing yeah. to listen. I'm willing to and I'm willing to listen to you. That's what my empathy was. And that takes a lot of courage because actually, you know, in life when things happen to us, we can't move on if we stay angry. And you know, forgiveness is not just about the person that hurt you. Forgiveness is about you. You're releasing all emotions. You know, the good, the bad. You talk about guilt, disappointment, you talk about pride, you talk about legacy, you know, and what you did in that program is, you know, people like me, I don't watch West Ham play, you know, I'd never watch football games, but you've opened yourself up to a whole new audience that didn't know you or that side of you. And we all don't think you've done anything wrong. Yeah. And um, for many, many years, the perception of me has been someone who's a liar, a cheat, uh, because I allowed people to control my narrative. That's 100% the reason mm-hmm. why and because of the, the enormity of the incident you know and there's probably still people that do that do think that you know I know if I went to a Chelsea game <laughs> I would be be hit with all, all, all types of obscenities be shouting at me and you know um, the, the classic song that I would receive anywhere I went really when playing football was you know who you are you know what you are you know what you are, Anton Ferdinand, you know what you are. And and I know there's still people that think that of me, but the documentary has 100% changed a lot of people's perception of me. But also because it was the real you, like people made their opinions based on a couple of columns or a photo or whatever, or a little soundbite. That isn't a that isn't the real you like a documentary would be. And, you know, those people enjoy being in a state of aggression, attack, anger, and they choose different targets at different times. And they chose you. It's, you know, they they know zero about the person that you are. But it feels so personal because it, it feels like an attack on you every time you hear it. Um but if it, you know you're in such a different place now, you know you've you've got an amazing wife, you've got two children, another another child on the way. Is it something you talk to them about that this specific actual incident that happened to you and just racism in general? Do you are they old enough for you to have those conversations? Well, my son's eight, my daughter's four. She's too young, uh, but my son he we've watched a documentary three times together. First time was the the night that it came out. Second time he just wanted to go back over it. The third time he wanted he was like, Dad, can you um can you sit down and and like talk me through it, please? I want to know what's happened. I want to know everything. Wow. Um, <laughs> and at first I was a bit scared to do it, if I'm honest, because I wanted I want to keep him as as pure as possible for as long as possible. He's eight years old. Yeah. You know my. My son has come to me before, before the documentary. That's why I felt a little bit more comfortable. I was scared, but I felt a bit more comfortable talking about it because he's had his own thing where he's come to me after school and said, Dad, like, why am I different? And I'd be like, well, what do you mean? But I'd never, I'd never imply what they mean different in colour. I wanted him to tell me. Mm-hmm. He said, no, I said, why, why are you asking if you're different? And so people in, like, in school are saying I'm different. And I was like, what do you mean? He went, I don't, I don't know, Dad. I went, well, because he because he didn't understand, I didn't want to mm. put that in his head that it, they yeah, could be talking that. about the, the, the colour of your skin, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and I just said to him, son, what's, 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 the, what's the problem with being different? There's no problem with being different, you know? The people that are saying that you're different are probably, they probably want to be you. That's mm. why, and they're jealous of 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 whatever they think your whatever they think your differences are. 
Mm-hmm. But sometimes, but what I'm going to say to you is being different is powerful. Mm-hmm. And as long as you carry that, that's the most important thing. Being different is nothing wrong with it. And I just left it I'm going to write that down. Being different is powerful. Yeah. I'm going to tell my kids that. That's amazing. Just, because, and, and I just left it at that. You know, but when I spoke to him about my incident, because obviously he's old enough, he can read, he can write, he can, he's on YouTube. He he types me in Google and reads stuff. He types me in on YouTube and watches it's that stuff. Age, yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and when we went through the documentary, he would say, Dad, can you stop it there, please? I want why did that happen? Why did this happen? And it was like, it was, it was educational for him. It was educational for me on how to mm. deal with it. But like, he was saying to me, Dad, um, why, why, why did Chelsea fans hate you? You didn't, didn't do nothing wrong. Why did they hate you? And I was explaining to him because John Terry is their hero. He's their captain, the legend, as they call him. Mm-hmm. And because of that, they, they hate me. And I said, but, and he's like, Dad, but you've done nothing wrong. I said, I know, but this is what happens. Not just in football, but in day-to-day life. If you're and that answer that he said, that's that's through the eyes of no prejudice. No, no that's that's innocence. innocence. Yeah, you know. But now my perception is different because the next day we was going, we watched it, and then we went on holiday. The next day, we went to and we went and stayed in a hotel at Gatwick, and I took him downstairs to get a coffee, just me and him to go and get a coffee, and get him a hot chocolate, and and just sit down and and just talk, just me and him. And I spent some time with him and behind me was a Chelsea fan when I was in the, in the queue and I was like, oh my God, I'm, I'm with Flynn. I've spoken to him about Chelsea fans the night before. Mm-hmm. My, my son's very sensitive and I was like, oh no, like, please just don't say nothing. Because I, I, I always expected a Chelsea fan to say something negative to me. That's just, now I'm wired like that or was wired like that. And the Chelsea fan... He said to me, um, and he's like a man in his 60s, and he went, Anton, said your documentary was unbelievable. It changed. Oh, it makes you want to cry. It was like, it was unreal, it was surreal. And I was like, what? And he went, son, you changed my perception of you. He said, he went, is that your son? And I went, yeah. And he went, your dad's a good man. He's a very, very, you're lucky to have him as your dad. He's a good man. So now my son's thinking, but you're a Chelsea fan. Why are you saying that to my dad? I thought you didn't like him, you know? And I could see my son's mind going like, wow. But I was Thank so powerful. I was so thrown, thrown by it because I was so used to receiving abuse. But you're changing perception. Yeah, this is it, what you're, it, you're opening people's minds. See, this is when I do think, right, social media and some of these platforms can be really powerful yeah. because... What's happened in the last 18 months with Black Lives Matter is it's challenged a lot of people to question things and not just to see one narrative and go along with it, to ask questions, to do your own research, to look into things, to be accountable for your inner thoughts as well as your spoken word and and ask yourself questions about your belief system. And I think, you know, people like you are making these positive changes. Like every time I'm going to have someone on my podcast, right, I'll ask different people in my life what they think. And so I said to my husband, oh, I'm going to have Anton Ferdinand. What do you think? And he, my husband's a Tottenham supporter. He's mixed race. And he's like, oh, babe, he's like brilliant. He's like the guy, what he's been through and where he is now. And is because he obviously watched the documentary as well. And he was like, one of the best guests you could have. 
And when I spoke to other people, men and women in my life, they were just like, that's a brilliant book in that. He's an amazing guy. Like every single person was in awe of what you've been through, how you've carried yourself. And the point is to where you are now and what you're doing with it. So much respect from, and most of the people in my life aren't really into football, but the ones that were, and they weren't, you know, necessarily supporters of the teams that you play for, were literally like, he's an amazing guy. Do you know what? It's, it's, I don't know how to receive. You're probably looking at me thinking like, why aren't you like, you don't look happy when I'm saying this to you. I don't know how to receive stuff like that, if I'm honest. Um, you know, um, I don't speak out or done a documentary for myself. It wasn't about, it wasn't for me. But what I can say is that I'm, I'm thankful and, and again, tell your husband I appreciate his, 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 his um, kind words. And It's probably the only episode he'll listen to. He never <laughs> listens to any of the ones. <laughs> I tell him I, I, I really appreciate it, um, you know, and, and but I won't stop until I feel I've got to a place where I can hand the baton over to the next generation because I, I sit here and mm. I'm, I'm not stupid. I don't think I'm going to be the one who's going to be able to change um, racism in society or in football. Um, but what I feel I can do is is get it to a place where the next generation can take on the baton and and implement real change. You know, mm. because they're different. They're different to our generation. They're um, they're more brazen. They're more outspoken. You know, and and they're more able and willing than us. I think. Well, I think this is why I admire you because, you know, you've you've taken this experience and you've helped other people find these coping mechanisms and ways to deal with this situation. You could have been negative, you could have been bitter and you're not, you know, you've moved forward. Um, and actually, I think at the end of the day, you're only human and sometimes our own motivation does run low on the ground. Sometimes we have difficult moments um, and no one would berate you for that, you know. But you, you carry on going. Like you're, you're such a role model, not only for f young football players, but I think for young people in general, for that next generation. So, I think really, I just want to end the podcast by saying you are an extraordinary person. That that is the title of the podcast, Extraordinary People, and that is exactly what you are. So, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you, and the reason why your podcast is called that is because you are the same. Ah, thank you. That's really kind of you. And I'm, I'm thankful to be sharing this platform with you and thank you for, for inviting me to speak about my my journey, um, you know, and to speak with somebody who has gone through hard times herself and, and you know, reading stuff that you spoke about in your, mm. your Metro columns really touched me. That's why I was, when it came through that you wanted me to do the podcast, I was, I was more than happy to do it, you know, and... You know, I think in terms of this topic of conversation about mental health and, and other things about human beings where we can help, I'm, I'm sure our paths are going to cross again because we're both yeah. two people that are passionate about helping people and, and say thank you and keep doing what you're doing because what you're doing is fantastic. Thank you. Thank you. I, yeah, we should definitely collaborate again because we, we do have a lot in common in terms of those things. But yeah, it's been amazing. Thank, Thank you. you it was much. so lovely to chat to you. Yeah, and have a good rest of the day. I, I can't do. believe your day started at 5 a.m. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for listening to Katie Piper's Extraordinary People. If you haven't already, please follow where you get your podcasts. Also, if you enjoyed this, please help us spread the word. Rate and review the show or share on your socials. <laughs>